Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by Litbreaker. Litbreaker is an online advertising network. It is a collection of sites in the culture vertical that you can advertise on all at once. You can advertise on piecemeal. Do you understand how this works? Litbreaker.com. Go there for more information. It's an online advertising network for book nerds, for movie nerds, for art nerds, for photography nerds, for music nerds, for people who like culture. If you want to reach those people online, if you have a message, if you would like to hawk your wares to people of that nature, go to litbreaker.com and learn how you can advertise on a bunch of great culture sites. Sites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Electric Literature, The Paris Review. You can advertise on the full network. You can pick which sites you like and advertise on those. Piecemeal. It's very user-friendly. Litbreaker.com for more information. Litbreaker. It's an online advertising network for book nerds, for art nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Gee, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, right, right. What's right. going on, everybody? Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is difficult to summarize. This is where you have placed your attention. For the time being, how's it going? I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm sitting here. It's nice to be with you. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be talking with you. I'm happy that you're listening. Where are you? Do you have earbuds in? Are you listening on headphones? Are you on the subway? Are you walking the city streets of a remote town in the Southern Hemisphere? I don't know where you are, but you know where I am, roughly speaking. My guest today is Michelle Adelman. Her debut novel is called Peace of Mind. P-I-E-C-E of mind. Get it? Peace of mind. It's available now from W.W. Norton and Company. It is her uh, debut. Did I say that already? Michelle Adelman in just a moment. Had a great time talking with her. Uh, Before we get there, I'm going to read some mail. Haven't done that in a while. Thanks for the uh, emails and the uh, tweets, the Twitter messages, the ats. How do the kids, uh, what's the lingo? The ats? The the DMs. A listener named David writes, hi, Brad, I just upgraded to premium and was hoping that you might recommend a few episodes from the archives. I'm a playwright and comedian primarily, but I've been carefully starting and abandoning a novel that is increasingly insistent on taking my focus. I'm very taken with something 
Hanya Yanagihara said in her recent episode about the preliminary morning for choices not made, for paths a novel might take that it can't, and letting that stop you. Thinking back over the 400 episodes, are there authors who had to forcibly extract a novel from their minds? People who knew the world and the characters, but just couldn't make themselves get to honest work on it. I'm interested in hearing from that type of writer, the type that justified a million procrastinations, but eventually got themselves to produce a novel that they were proud of. Let me know if any come to mind. Signed, David. Uh, David, you just described like pretty much every guest that's ever been on this show. And you described me. I don't mean to be dismissive at all. If anything, this is a uh, statement of solidarity, but that's, that's pretty much the ball game. Yeah, there are people who have greater and lesser uh, abilities to uh, discipline themselves to get down to the business of work. But for all of us who try to do this, that's the you know internal wrestling match that we engage in, I think. That certainly seems to be what I've gleaned from all these conversations with writers. It's not easy for anyone. We all try to avoid it. We all find a million other things to do before we finally get down to the, you know, to brass tacks. But, you know, there are, uh, you can learn from people who, who have that similar experience and you can learn from the fact that they eventually got it done. There have been people on this show, and I'm probably not going to be able to remember them off the top of my head, but there are uh, writers who have, uh, like an unusually good attitude about the work or an unusually easy ability to do it. It's fun for them at a level that it might not be fun for others. Like I'm thinking of Bud Smith, that episode. I feel like that's a nice refreshing episode for people who get mired in the uh, bog of procrastination. You get mired in a bog, right? That's where you get mired. Thanks for the uh, letter, David. I appreciate it. I wish you luck. Just write it down. What did Hanya uh, Yanagihara say? She, you know, 2,000 words a week or 5,000 in a month. Count your words. Give yourself a metric. Write it down. Make yourself accountable. Put it on a piece of paper. That's always worked for me. A listener who goes by the initials uh, LF writes, Dear Brad, I feel like writers used to talk about writers and writing and things that have been written. These days a writer is lucky to get an interview or an article, so there's not much space for people to talk. I'd love to hear what Sam Lipsight thinks of Donald Antrim or Michael Shabin or even Andre Kirkov. Andre Kirkov? Andre Kirkov? Does this exist? I don't think so. Does it matter? Of course not. Would it be awesome? Of course it would be. I meant to write an email asking you where I could find good info like this, but I quickly realized that it doesn't exist. Maybe someone should make it exist. I'd sure love to read it. Signed, LF. I think this exists. Writer, I mean, book reviews. Writers are often writing reviews of other writers. Writers occasionally have blogs lists of books that they've, you know, a lot of times at the end of the year, writers will post, uh, you know, the books that they have read and liked over the course of the year. I don't know. I mean, it's a Google it. And, and I think like maybe you're, you're talking about writers shit talking or being more like openly critical of other writers and wanting more of that as opposed to just, you know, people kind of scratching each other's backs and, and blurbing each other and interviewing each other on various websites you know, friends interviewing friends that, to help with the uh, publicity push or whatever. I get that. 
I understand uh, a resistance to that and a desire for more candid, less like inside baseball conversation, but I think it's there. I think, you know, most writers that I know tend not to want to shit talk other writers publicly. I don't know, man. I always go back to that Kurt Vonnegut line where he's like, any write, anyone who would, uh, you know, write an attack on a novel is as absurd as somebody who, like, dresses up in a suit of armor and attacks a hot fudge sundae. If you've ever sat down to actually try to write a novel, it seems, I don't know, it just seems like such a hard thing to, to do and to, to finish. If anybody finishes one, it's like, hats off to them. It might not be my cup of tea, but so what? I don't, I don't have an interest in that. I don't have the time, you know, I'm not the guy to do that, but I'm sure it exists. I mean, occasionally, I mean, I say that, I mean, I do have opinions of what I read, but I guess I'm just more interested in talking about what I've read and liked than what I've read and didn't like, because what I've read and I didn't like, I usually don't even finish. I just put it down. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Michelle Adelman. Her debut novel, Peace of Mind, is out there now from W.W. Norton and Company. Uh, great time talking with her. Very pleased to uh, have a chance to share this conversation with you and to introduce her uh, to you because this is her debut. Here she is, folks. This is Michelle Adelman. So, well, my dad worked in the city uh, in New York, okay. so he took the train every day. He worked um, for nonprofit foundations doing things like that. And my mom uh, was a teacher in community college. Okay. Wow. So, like, uh, did you grow up in a literary household? Like, uh, reading? Was that, like, you know, books all around, and parents reading and interested in books? Or was this something you found on your own? Yeah, kind of a combo. I mean, my parents did always read. They were always reading, but um, they were really interesting in their taste. Like they read a lot of, uh, I don't want to sound elitist, but they they read some trashy stuff too. Like they Is would your read- dad into Daniel Steele? Or- <laughs> Not quite that bad. Um, but I mean, he read a lot of, I want to say he read like a lot of Tom Clancy and- What was that? Like did something just hit the wall? It sounded like it. Okay. Yeah, things are falling on the garage. <laughs> um, but Tom Clancy's a very dad. My dad was into Tom Clancy, right? That I guess like, that's what it is. That's like yeah. late eighties, early nineties. Like you yeah. know, Hunt for Red October was a thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, 
but they did always read. So that was that was a model that I had. Okay. But like I never saw the New Yorker actually until I went to college. So that was an interesting. Yeah, I don't think I did either. Yeah, might which... have been, might have even been later. <laughs> right? No. Yeah. I mean, it was it was late. So, considering that they were readers and, and well educated, and you got along with them. I did for the most part. Yeah. No, I did. They're they're great. Yeah. Like teenage years, the typical stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Were, typical stuff. Were you I think. a good kid? I was a very good kid. Yeah. You strike I was... me as the kind of <laughs> kid who would have been no problem. Yeah. Well, I was the youngest of four. So um, my parents took a very hands-off approach. Like, okay, you're on your own. I I watched a lot of TV. I ate a lot of junk food, but I didn't. I kind of made my own discipline, essentially. So maybe it, by the time you get to four, you're just like, I'm done. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I get, but um, yeah, it was an interesting way to grow up because I kind of um, all the discipline I had was self-imposed. So it worked out for them. I mean, how hands, <laughs> how hands off are we talking? There was nothing hippie about your parents. It wasn't like you know, no, it wasn't intentional. I don't think it was just sort of like, okay, well, um, I mean, and and I had my brother. The one who was closest in age, we would be home alone a lot after school and, you know, playing outside or watching TV. Um, Did you feel neglected? I didn't. I didn't feel neglected. But in retrospect, I'm like, wow, like we had a lot of freedom. You could just like, how old were you when you could uh, like walk to the store, you know, go do, you know, I don't know, like little errands and stuff. Because I I have, I was thinking about that. I was reading this article in. Uh, I don't know, something somewhere online. And it was about Germany and how German parents are way less uh, helicopter. They give them more freedom, yeah, right? Yeah. These kids are like four years old. They're like, yeah, <laughs> you, you know, go take the subway or whatever it is. Right. Uh, maybe not that, but you know what I'm saying? Like they, the kids have autonomy and they go walk and they're not worried about like, uh, you know, the kidnapper in the windowless van. Like none of that paranoia has like seeped into their culture and they're very big on you know, giving their kids a sense of uh, responsibility and freedom or whatever. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, should I do that? Like, what was it the other day? Yeah. I was going to send my daughters like five. So I was like, maybe <laughs> she's I ready. No, but I was, like, I was like, why don't you go walk up to the corner? And, uh, and I was kind of teasing with her and she was like, yeah. I can't do that because she never has before. <laughs> right. Sure. So I'm, I'm sort of thinking maybe, uh, maybe I need to be more hands off. Yeah. So I mean, neglecting my kids more. <laughs> I don't know about that, but it was a different era. I mean, I remember, yeah, we were, I went to a friend's house who our neighborhood, we kind of just lived in a remote area. So there weren't many stores we could go to. So we would explore in the woods and things. But one of my friends lived in a, in an area where, yeah, like by, I would, say by first grade or so we were walking to the store with found money and buying candy and hanging out yeah i remember going to a drugstore (laughs) when i was a kid and i was probably i was probably like third grade fourth grade and uh trying to buy uh, a huge like remember rambo those movies yes remember the knife that he had oh yeah like a big huge (laughs) Like they used to sell those in the drugstore right. by my house in uh, suburban Milwaukee, and I wanted one. It had a compass in the bottom of it, and you. Could I think it. my brother had one of those. I yeah, was like this, and, the, and it went for like thirty bucks or whatever. Yeah. So I'm scrounging together thirty bucks. I'm trying to buy a buck knife, and like, I'm in third grade. <laughs> They're like, "Yeah, here you go, kid." Right? <laughs> sure. Like, why not? It's like a twelve inch blade. You can like <laughs> saw. You can cut a tree down with it, you know. But uh, yeah, that it's was crazy. Like, have things gotten less safe? Or have people just gotten more paranoid? Like, what has changed? Why has, why, why is that kind of thing become unthinkable? And it's not like 
kids yeah. everywhere were stabbing each other with giant like Rambo hunting knives or whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like maybe there was right. an, an accident here or there, but eh, well, you got to let kids grow up. What's changed? I know. I don't know. I think so much of it, I think, is perception, right? I mean, I feel like the local news is so scary and I don't know if that's gotten worse, but in my mind it has maybe, um, and well, media culture, internet, media culture. There you go. Yeah. 24 hour news cycle. Yeah. Um, you know, and then these shootings, which just like, the you know, shootings are horrifying. Yeah. yeah I think that, that's like, changed the things. terrorism. Yes. Like, yeah. That kind of basically like, there's like a built in undercurrent of fear pulsing through, um, like, I there guess, glo- is global existence, global Western existence now, but American existence, I guess, for our particular uh, situation. And uh, it's a shame. It is. It is. Well, and you can't be the only parent who's sending your five-year-old up the street. Why not? <laughs> I guess. But yeah. Let them judge. <laughs> right. Exactly. Go to Whole Foods. Get that a green <laughs> juice. Um, I'll be that uh, Los Angeles, you know, Los Angeles parent. There you go. Yeah. Send my child to Whole Foods for her first parent. <laughs> That seems like a good, safe introduction. <laughs> I don't know. This Whole Foods around here is kind of crazy. Uh, I find like, I don't know if you feel this way about San Francisco, but in Los Angeles, there are like, I call them crazy pockets. Like Yes. And for whatever reason, right by the grocery store uh, near our house, it's just there's just a weird factor and I don't know what creates oh, it. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, uh, you're in Stanford, Connecticut. Mm. You're the, the fourth child, mm-hmm. horribly neglected. <laughs> right. Alone. Alone with her brother, watching TV, going to the store, Um, reading on your own? Yes, I did. I spent a lot of time reading on my own. But but a TV kid primarily. Yeah. I mean, I will fully admit that I watched way too much TV. What were you watching? Everything. Um, I remember my brother, he was older, so he was in charge of the TV a lot of times. So I watched a lot of his cartoons, which I didn't necessarily enjoy, like He-Man and things like that. War of the Worlds. Was that one of them or no? Was it? Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, like very cheesy kind of animation. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then all the sitcoms, you know, the Facts of Life and the Cosby Show and Family Ties, all me that too. stuff. Yeah, me too. All the theme songs. <laughs> I still know them by heart. Yeah, there you go. What about Bill Cosby? That is crazy and heartbreaking, I think. I mean, I'm not alone in saying but that. Not, but not hugely surprising to me. Really? No. Even like because when the first news of it no, broke out? No, no. Because really? he's, like, he always sort of bothered me. And I don't mean to give myself too much credit, but he did. Like the sanctimoniousness, <laughs> like the pull your pants up. The, yeah, like whenever I can somebody, see that. Whenever somebody is wagging their finger that hard mm. and, you know. There's not always, but it's not always a surprise when somebody like that is hiding something. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, I guess that's true. And I never found his comedy that hilarious. I mean, the, the Cosby Show. Yes, everybody loved the Cosby Show as a right. kid. You know, you know the whole family, and you know it made you laugh or whatever. But yeah, like his stand-up, I was always like, "What's the big fuss about this?" Like the you know, right, it just seems silly to me. But kind of like clean. I mean, I think his whole image was like clean family kind of humor, which, it's, yeah. It's a dark, that's a, fl- a red flag right there. I guess so. Anybody I guess now to, I have to see it that yeah, way. Clean family <laughs> image. It's, it's a bad, it's bad news every time. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're watching TV, you're reading sometimes, you're in Stanford, mm-hmm. um, you get to high school. Mm. That's where things get interesting, right? 
but not but you yeah. see but you were such a good kid it was probably pretty uh, down the, you know down the line it was nothing crazy yeah high school was um tough for me because i went to a, a private school up until 8th grade and then it was tiny and then i switched to the big public school and i was yeah i was overwhelmed by that so i tried to hide actually a lot do you have friends I did have friends, but um, I wouldn't say that I went out all the time. And um, did you go to the prom? I did. Okay. I went to the prom. <laughs> all right. It wasn't that bad. I had, <laughs> I had, I had things to do. I was actually very athletic. Um, I was the captain of three sports. So Jesus, what were you playing? I played basketball. And By the way, this is not something you often hear <laughs> in this garage from writers. Yeah, I know. Well, people are are often surprised by that. Um, but yeah, I played basketball, softball, and soccer. So I was busy, really. What was your number one sport? Basketball, believe it or not, because I'm short. Point and, guard? Uh, point guard or shooting guard, or yeah. Shooting. You could shoot. I, I could shoot, yeah. I had a not a pretty looking shot, but it went in. Okay. So. <laughs> Same with Larry Bird. <laughs> yeah, you know, there you cares? go. <laughs> uh, you lead the team in scoring? Um. I was up there. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, when I got to high school, by then I was probably, you know, two or three in scoring. Okay. You still play? <laughs> you still hoop it? No, no, I don't. Unfortunately, going? I wish that I had played like tennis or something like that. Yeah. Something practical, but yeah, sadly, I'm, I'm no. sort of like you know, because as a guy, you know, especially as you're getting older, um, these these sports that you can carry with you for your life. Tennis, I guess, is one of them. Golf is like you know the the one that people do when they're really right. old. Yeah, but man, to be a golfer, like a, it's expensive. B, it is. It takes forever. Like, it seems got, boring. Who's to got me. the money and time to go golfing like regularly <laughs> enough to go to, to be good at it? Right, that's uh, true. It seems absurd to me. Yeah, if you can, like, I always say this. Like, I joke around. I'm always like, listen, if you can read a book, like mm. a book a week, you're killing it. Like yeah. if, you, if you have the yeah. time, if you have that'd the time, be amazing. Or even yeah. like a book every two weeks, you know, like yeah. if somebody's reading a lot, they're super privileged because they can sit around or they're or, right. Or they have they're time. Lazy. Yeah, <laughs> they're, <laughs> right. They're living off the government in like a hovel, but yeah, um, it's kind of a joke that I make. And then the same joke I would, you know, I would apply maybe more seriously to uh, golfing. Like if you're golfing, I guess that's an obvious point. No, that's that's really true. It's like that's a full day event. Yeah, at least yeah. six hours. Yeah, drinking, beautiful. Yeah, like. Like massive amounts of acreage has been like perfectly manicured for you to go like hit a little white ball. Hit around. a ball, I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good life. It seems like it. Um, okay, so you're playing sports. Yes. You're watching television. <laughs> you're still horribly neglected. <laughs> right. <laughs> you haven't seen your parents in years. That's <laughs> probably true. Yeah. Um, you're going to the prom. Yeah. Uh, are you dating a lot in high school? No, I no. didn't date a lot in high school. Who did though? I mean, like, I yeah, guess, I know. I who did? People, That's a good are, question. There are people who had like a serious boyfriend or girlfriend in high school. Obviously, I knew them. Yeah, but they, they always say like, you know, I, I think popular culture feeds us this line that like, oh, you know, that's the time when you begin to date. Like, are people going on dates in high school? No one dates. I don't think that many people date. I taught high school for a while, and. um yeah, I mean, it seems like everyone wants to date. They all kind of talk <laughs> about it, but very few of them actually couple off. And then the ones who do are very serious. It seems like making out in the hallway. Yeah, like, like that's it, full it. on. It's yeah, full on. <laughs> um, I never had that. I was too. I was too. I was. I was a late bloomer. I was too. Yeah. yeah very, Maybe it's because of our birthdays. Yeah, our shared <laughs> August first birthday. Yeah. Um, 
But though we're the lion of the zodiac, we're supposed to lead or something. Right? I know. We're supposed to be bold. Exactly. <laughs> the yeah. fuck happened? The awkward lion. It happens later. That'll be my children's book. <laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. Um, so then uh, college? College was great. I went to Northwestern. Um, That's a good school. Yeah. It was very cold. <laughs> how, did that, how did you get there? What? Like you leave Stanford and you decide you're going to go to Chicago? Yeah. I wanted to... I studied journalism. So that was my... Um, that was the school to go to. Um, and it was great. I was totally focused on that. And uh, I loved it. It was fantastic. You're a good student. Yes. I um, was very good student. I worked hard. Mostly, you know, so I did pretty well. Well, there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> locate your weaknesses. Yeah, well, let's see. <laughs> um, so you get to Chicago, uh, you're freezing. You're <laughs> right, you're that would be my flaw, my fatal flaw. But a fun town, great town. Yeah. Fun town to go to school in, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was fun. I mean, Evanston's a little outside Chicago, but yeah, we went into the city, I think probably once a month usually. And it was nice. Was it, did you go crazy at all? You know, again, I didn't really go crazy in college. It's so, did you ever have a period when you went crazy? I did. Okay. I mean, I didn't go crazy, but I moved to New York right after college that summer. And, um, so those year, those early twenties, were I made up for a lot of that. <laughs> right. Um, I was about to say, like, yeah. maybe your parents were onto something. Maybe like, you know, like this hands-off approach is what leads a child to become right. uh, self-sufficient, collected. <laughs> yeah. You know? There might be something to that. Yeah. Or it's just, or do you think it maybe is just DNA? Like that's just how you're wired. I'm, yeah, I think about that sometimes. I think it's a combo. I mean, I do. And now you're expecting a child. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, the law of averages <laughs> states that this kid's going to be a hellion. Because you were such a good kid. <laughs> it's possible. You're right. <laughs> um, okay. So you, you major in journalism. What kind of journalism were you thinking you wanted to do? Did you have a model or was it just kind of broadly like, I want to be a journalist? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think a couple years in, I discovered I wanted to do magazine journalism. Um, but initially, I think I had visions of being this like heroic, um, you know, um, Oh, what's the movie? All the President's Men, that yes. kind of thing. You're going to bring down the president. Exactly. I was like, <laughs> yes, I could do that. Um, but I pretty quickly realized I couldn't do that because I liked writing and I liked research. I was kind of nerdy in that way. But I hated calling people on the phone if they didn't answer right away, if I had to call them back and bother them and so it's a little anxiety inducing. It was. It's almost like sales or something. You're, exactly. It's like cold calling. Yeah. So I that was not I was not cut out for that you part be, of it. You have to be kind of a persistent asshole to be a good journalist. You do. I you, hate to say it, shameless. but you do. Like yeah. I watch uh, I've been watching the circus, the Showtime document you know, docuseries about the election. Oh yeah, like I haven't Halperin, seen that yet. Mark Halpern and John Heilman are like, and Mark McKinnon are like traveling around with all the candidates all over the various uh, primary states or whatever. Mm. And you, you know, you're watching uh, Halpern just like sort of hover near like a rope line where Hillary Clinton is like shaking hands. Mm-hmm. He's just like barking out questions at her, trying to get like a reaction, and you can yeah. see, you can see her feeling his presence, and she doesn't like him. <laughs> and it's like you got to that's that's his life. He's got to be. I mean, and we need somebody yeah. there to like ask questions. I don't know if like, you know, he would be my pick, but uh, <laughs> you have to have a certain temperament 
You uh, do. You do. I don't know. And kind of a fearlessness, I think. That's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's good. I mean, he seems like he's not unafraid to mix with those people. But I get a little... Uh, I get a little uh, skeeved out about political journalism at the highest levels oftentimes because I feel like there's too much kinship between the, poli- the political yeah. elites and the journalistic elites. Like I want my journalist who's covering power mm-hmm. to be somehow like a stranger, yeah, uh, you know, as, as disconnected from it as possible. Like never going to barbecues in the summer at like Newt Gingrich's ranch or whatever the fuck, you know, like I don't want that. Right. I totally agree. And yeah, I mean, I'd much rather read stories about things that actually matter in these campaigns than, you know, who had the best superficial sort of line or whatever. Right. Like yeah. the horse race. Or exactly. That like drives the, the, me nuts. The Mark Halpern giving like letter grades to candidates on their b- debate performances. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't help. That shit drives me crazy. Yeah. Uh, don't get me started on <laughs> I know. Yeah. No, I know. <laughs> this, will spir- this will spiral badly. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So you said you wanted to do magazine journalism. Uh-huh. And this was what? Like late 90s, early aughts? Yes, exactly. Right when magazines are just taken off. <laughs> Impeccable <laughs> <Right>. timing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to be a print journalist. <laughs> right. Uh, but you were thinking like long-form investigative, like New Yorker type pieces? Or- that was the dream, that I was think. The, dream. the New Yorker, um, yeah, Vanity Fair I used to like a lot at, at, as a writer. Yeah. They had some, like Vanity Fair has some good articles. Mm-hmm. But there are a few magazines that uh, raise my hackles more than Vanity Fair. Oh, really? Just the, just the, the lifestyle that it presents. Yeah. That, well, there's so much celebrity in it. And, and, and yeah. just the old money, the celebration and veneration of old money and these stories, every issue. And I know people like that, but it's just kind it of gets like... tiring. It's just like white elite bullshit over yes. and over and over again. And Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys on a yacht. I know. Another Fuck article me. about that. I know. Yeah. crazy. <laughs> But yet, we have a subscription. <laughs> I'm a huge hypocrite. I want you to know that. No, I get it. First thing you should know about me. <laughs> I totally get it. Um, so, okay. So, when did your dreams get shattered? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, well, so I went to New York and then I worked in trade magazines for a while. So, um, I worked at a higher education magazine and... Um, and for a menswear magazine that were like for the trades, so they weren't widely circulated. And while that was good work, it was not the kind of work that was really driving me. I wasn't passionate about it at all. <laughs> yeah. You don't basically. have to soft sell that. I know. I'm like, what if they hear this? <laughs> you were grateful for the job. I was, the work was that's now. right. Yeah. I think I realized at that point and the money in journalism is awful. Oh yeah. my goodness. Yeah. It just, um, journalism, uh, writing books, unless you, yes. unless you hit it. Like, yes, now I'm needle. so rich. Yes, now but, it's yeah. raining money. <laughs> no, but it's like, like journalism, like media jobs in general, unless yeah, you it's get, amazing how I don't know if people realize that. No, yeah. it's a it's a one percent ninety nine percent proposition, just yeah. like much of the I guess the rest of the world is. But um, it seems like there's so many people trying to do it. It's so competitive. Right. There's so few seats at the table that you have to be both. I guess either really lucky and really excellent, mm-hmm. or just really lucky. Because there are right. lot, there are lots of people making lots of money who are not really excellent. That's true. Um, yeah, you know, so it can happen. Yeah, you know, but it's just there are very few seats at the table. 
I, I sometimes compare it just to keep uh, mixing metaphors to like musical chairs. Mm, you know, right. It feels like uh, there's all, there's you know everyone's walking around. There's all these chairs, and then the music stops. People get their chairs, and then it's like fuck you. You know, got my chair. <laughs> <laughs> right, and that is kind of how it works. Once you hit that level, like those editors, they just go to different places and kind yeah. of. They do play musical chairs. Right. You know. Yeah. So you get in, you start working for these trades. Are you still, like, are you freelancing? Are you trying to write long-form journalism on the side, like in the manner that you actually dreamed of doing? Or was it something that sort of, you know, your day job sucked all the life out of you? <laughs> Left you a shell of and that's when self. I started going out. And <laughs> so, was there a reaction? Like, because I feel like this sometimes happens to young people. I think it happened to me where you know I had a pretty fun college experience to say mm. the least. You know, it was not without its difficulties, but I had a good time. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Maybe too good of a time. Mm. And then you get out into the the quote unquote real world, and suddenly it's like, oh shit. Oh yeah. This isn't going to be fun at all. Yeah. And you can react against that. Like I found that period of my life very difficult. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I just remember thinking, I have to go to work every day, <laughs> like all day. Like this is not like college where I got to make my own schedule and kind of sleep in if I wanted to. I and have like no classes on Thursdays and Fridays. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I only get two weeks vacation the whole year. Like what is that? That's, um, That's what it is. Yeah, I know. I agree. So I did find that adjustment really difficult. And you started lashing out, going crazy? <laughs> well, I loved living in New York, so that was a nice solace. Where were you in the city? Uh, gosh, I moved so much. I was. Um, I started on the Upper East Side. I lived near Times Square, believe it or not. Um, I lived in Brooklyn for a couple years, and I moved up to Washington Heights. Um, so... I explored. I did. I moved a lot. Just like little tiny shitty apartments? And- yeah. Okay. But basically. Fun, fun place <laughs> to be in your 20s. Fun place to be, yeah. What did you do? Well, how did you go nuts? Like, and let's let's put this in a Michelle Adelman <laughs> context. What is, <laughs> right. What is going nuts for yeah, Michelle Adelman? I don't know like? that. I, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I just remember like being very happy to celebrate um, like happy hour on a Tuesday and just... Um, my brother was in New York. I became friends with his friends immediately, so that was nice. I kind of didn't have to find a community. That's good. Um, and then You've got lots of guy friends. He had a lot of guy friends, which right. was fun. You know, um, you dating any of these guys? No, luckily I never dated any of that them. That can get awkward. It would them. have gotten awkward. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, and then I had other friends. I mean, I just remember it was the kind of thing where. Um, it wasn't just that you went out on the weekends. You, Yeah. I mean, we enjoyed our... I mean, and my whole paycheck went to... Alcohol. Alcohol. Drugs. And, <laughs> no drugs. Just no drugs. Alcohol but, and cocaine. <laughs> alcohol and uh, and food, basically. That was it. Yeah, cause nobody, and rents. I barely made it. Nobody, yeah. Nobody... Like, it doesn't seem like people eat in their in their apartments very often. Right. No, You're I never out. did. Never. Yeah. And then you like I don't understand how people make it, especially I don't either. Yeah, but people do. Like somehow yeah. people eke by in New York. They do, they do. But it's like I remember thinking at a certain point, like if I stay here, I will, I will wake up in the same place in ten years, like still struggling and still. Yeah, that was a, a fear of mine. Just be like waking up at like thirty five and still living in a shitty apartment, like eating a slice of pizza for dinner every night. Yes, with no savings <laughs> and yeah, exactly. Oh my god! <laughs> Single, like I just yeah. So how long were you there till? 
So let's see. I was there for eight years. I went to grad school. So at a certain point, I realized I wanted to. What I really wanted to do was try fiction writing. So and what and what brought this on? Like, how did you? When when did this dawn on you? Um, it was just being in a job that I didn't like, and certainly wasn't my passion, and feeling like I did have something to say. Um, so I started writing. I had never in college. I never took a fiction class. I never. Um, knew how to write a short story, but I just started playing and I took a, uh, an extension course at the new school and then I was hooked and I decided, okay, I'm going to try an MFA. So what, I stayed what was in it New about York the, for that. What was it about the fiction class at the new school that hooked you? Um, I think I realized, well, first of all, it was terrifying because, um, the workshop setting, you just, oh my God, the first time I got workshopped, I wanted to cry, obviously. I think a lot of people have that reaction. Were people mean to you? They were, I mean, they didn't mean to be mean, but the first time it happens, you take it personally. You're like, this is my writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, I learned so much and so quickly um, because I was so excited about it. I think that was the thing. I was just... I wanted to read as much as I could. I wanted to write as much as I could. And um, I had a really encouraging teacher. And, um, you know, at a certain point, it was like, wait, wait, wait. You're Because I remember going to her and thinking like, asking her basically like, is there anything in here redeeming? And she was like, yeah, oh my God. And just going, giving me the confidence to realize, no, there's, there's sparks in here that you could do something and, with. And then you went to Columbia? So then I did the MFA thing, yeah. And? And that was great. It was amazing. Um, so that was, I actually, so I did that and then I ended up doing a teaching fellowship through that. So I was there affiliated with Columbia for four years, which was amazing. I loved it. I loved being back. As, as I've said before, I like school. So I loved being back in that Where environment. Do you teach now? I was teaching up until this year, basically. Okay. Yeah. And then what? You'd like to hell with teaching? Now I I'm, hate kids. <laughs> I love kids. It. I loved teaching, but I'm kind of like a, a very much. I guess I'm. I just put everything into everything. So I had a really hard time balancing. I didn't do a lot of writing for a long time when I was teaching because that was my world. So now I'm kind of trying to figure it out. I don't know. Well, you know, <laughs> teaching is a. Uh, is a is a very exhausting work. It is. It's very rewarding, but it's also yeah exhausting. And I don't think people realize that uh, sometimes. You know, from the outside looking in, yeah, like it's not it's not something you just go and show up and do. You like you take it home with you, right? And every day, <laughs> the grading and the, yeah, I mean it's a big it's a big huge time commitment and energy commitment. Yeah, uh, but a valuable thing to do, like a good contribution to make. Absolutely, yeah. So you started, you were teaching uh, out of Columbia, and then mm -hmm. at some point after that, you bailed out of New York? Yes. You and were, then I was enough? done with New York. Oh, yeah. I had enough. Okay. And then you're like, <laughs> and that, is that when you, like, what, you moved to uh, San Diego? I did. Yeah. And that was almost on a whim. I just decided to do a big job search um, in, uh, in the independent school world, which is basically like high school. And I decided... Uh, I got a job offer in San Diego and it was gorgeous there. I was like, okay, why not? I Let's knew one person. Sunshine. Yeah. And where in San Diego? 
Uh, I lived in Hillcrest for a while, and then um, and then I lived in Bird Rock. I don't even know why I'm asking. I, I don't know. What <laughs> like, I'm does that mean anything to you? <laughs> I don't know. Me. I don't know, but yeah, I loved it. So it was great. So you're teaching there. How long were you there for? Seven years, I think. I had to think about that. And then you yeah. got out of there. And then I got out of there. Yeah. And then you moved to San Francisco. Why did you get out of there? You just had enough there too. Uh, no, my husband's job took us up. To the bay. Although I think we're moving back down again, perhaps. Oh, really? So, yeah. All right. And wait, where did you meet him? Did you meet him in San Diego? I met him in San Diego. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And then, but tech up to San Francisco or no? Uh, biotech. Whoa. So not the kind of tech where he works at Google and makes <laughs> so much, yeah. but yeah, biotech. He's was, a science guy. I was on Twitter this morning and I like retweeted some gif that's, you know, it's like flying around the internet of a... Uh, the Microsoft executive team on stage at like a Windows 95 release. This is like 20 years old. Okay. And they're dancing yeah. to remember when <laughs> remember when a PC used to when you started it up and the Rolling Stones song "Start Me Up" came on. Oh yeah. It was like that Windows release. Oh, funny. And there's a GIF of like Steve Ballmer and uh, and uh, Bill Gates and all the team, and they're all they're such nerds. Yeah. Like like, ang- <laughs> and they're and they're angry. Like it really oh, is. Oh yeah, like, like I know the, what you mean. The people on the yeah. on the crest of the wave in technology, you know, like the first operating systems, Apple. It really is revenge of the nerds. Yeah. Like it's not. I mean, like capital R revenge. Like they're pissed off. Yeah. And they're really rich and powerful, and they're happy, and they're like they're dancing. They think they're cool. They're dancing. <laughs> I'll have I, to check that out. You have to check it out. It's a little. It's a little terrifying. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's menace in it. I think it's the weird thing. And, and, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah. So. um Anyhow, you go up to San Francisco, and now you might come back down here. Yes. You wrote this book somewhere in the middle of it all, right? I did. Um, so the book, I actually started, believe it or not, like years ago, um, when it was m- the bare bones of the book, like a super rough draft of it, was my thesis for my MFA. Okay. And so. why this Why this story? Is this something like drawn from personal experience, or is it something that you just like imagined and you live in a world of fantasy? Yeah, well, um, my so the main character Lucy um, is definitely influenced, especially in the beginning. The inspiration for her came from my sister. So they both suffered from a traumatic brain injury when they were young. What happened to, to your sister? So my sister was hit by a bus. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. So she broke her neck and was in a coma. She's older than I am, so I don't. I wasn't there for any of this, but um, certainly impacted everything. Um, How old was she? She was three. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, for obvious reasons, that just was something that stayed with me. And mostly because she herself is this amazing character and just unlike anyone else I know, just really funny and smart. Um, so she recovered. She recovered, but, you know, she has her challenges. Um, so that that's an interesting tension, I think, that I wanted to explore, just that she could be so capable in so many ways and yet struggle in these very fundamental basic ways so what like i, like, I don't know like cognitively yes is she independent or is she does she need assistance so like where is she like you know like what are what are the ramifications of the injury yeah so she um i mean she lives by herself but she doesn't have a full-time job for example that's too hard for her um she has trouble uh 
she doesn't she struggles with her executive functions <laughs> so what, what executive fun? i think i might struggle with those. <laughs> yeah i think we all do a little <laughs> bit which yeah. is kind of part of what i think is interesting about the book but but yeah like organizing her room i mean when i say it's like everyone's a little messy it's it's you can't believe it it's not like a quote unquote standard messy it's it's really it's exceptionally messy. it's exceptionally it's like a hoarder like like shit everywhere yes exactly all right yeah so that um is one example like if, organizing if um, i talk to her would, <clears throat> would i know yeah i think you would i think you would find her very funny because she's unfiltered and she just kind of goes um wait a minute i think that might be me <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely not um, but I think you'd realize, and then, you know, you'd be talking about one thing and then all of a sudden you're on a completely different topic and you have no idea how you got there and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. But she's able to be independent at least. She's independent. I mean, she wouldn't, thankfully she has good support from us, her family, but, um, but she's essentially independent. I mean, you know, she... She lives on her own. Right. Yeah. And, and so, okay, so you sat down to write this and you wanted to at least uh, like model a character on her. Exactly. But put that character into a fictional context. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. That's a good place to start. Yeah. You know, because you did like what a lifetime's worth of character study. And you, and you, <laughs> right. And you've got a unique profile to work from. Right. Uh, did you modify? I mean, I guess you felt that liberty. That's one of the beauties of fiction is that you can start with that real person, but then modify the character, expand, contract as needed. Exactly. You didn't feel like you needed to maintain fidelity to her actual person. No. And in fact, it was very liberating to know that I didn't have to because to recreate her would have been just a challenge. I mean, for so many reasons. Um, Does she know that you wrote this book and based it on her? She does. She read it um, and she likes it a lot, actually. Um, But we never had that conversation of, Oh, how did you feel when you were reading this? Did you see yourself? Because, you know, it is a work of fiction. So, like, it's not her story, but, um, but yeah, I think there are probably elements in it that she knows, obviously, are drawn from her. Okay. And how long did it take you to write this book? So, it's hard to say because I started it at the end of that MFA program. So, that was actually, like, 10 years ago. But, um... But then when I was teaching, I really put it away for years, actually. Um, And it wasn't until maybe three years ago where I just decided, okay, that's it. I have to finish this thing. I just got to the point where I needed to. Okay. So first of all, so what do you do then? Are you still teaching and you just start waking up early or you start staying up late? Oh, good question. Yeah. Well, it was really that summer. It was a summer Uh when I just said... Um, and for whatever reason I had, my summers were always booked up until that point. And then I just, With I what? made it the priority. I mean, teacher development stuff. Um, Burn, I was yeah. a Dean for a while, so I had to go in during the summer. Um, no burning man. I was like, I was like, oh wow. You had some crazy, uh, social life. <laughs> crazy social life. You're like, no, it's like faculty. Meeting. I know. It, yeah. I mean, nothing family stuff, um, that I had to do. So yeah, it just, it, it took the back burner. And I think it also took me saying, being okay with, no, I should give this a shot. I think I sort of like hid my head whenever I said I was a writer. I made it like the 15th priority. And then suddenly I was like, no, I want to try this. I want to see what happens. Okay. So, so 
it was a shift. That ha- I mean, it's not an uncommon story. People have mm. a project that lasts for a decade or whatever. Um, yeah, sometimes book- books take a long time. Yeah. And due to life circumstances or due to the fact that it just takes a long time. Some people are slow. They write every day for 10 years. And they, yeah. Uh, I wish I was doing that, but yeah. Uh, do you feel like in, you know, with the benefit of hindsight that, you know, while you probably like wish you could have like written this thing when you were 24 and like a mm. six month, you know, <laughs> right. shot the fact that you did shelve it and that you did go tend to other parts of your life and pursue other things with the benefit of hindsight, do you think that maybe the book improved due to some subconscious work, you know, the, the incubation period, like you had the story, yeah. the, the rough framework in your mind and you wrote some of it and then you shelve it. And then you go off into your life for two, three, four years or mm-hmm. whatever it is. And then you come back to it. Do you think that made it a better book? I think so. At least I hope so. Um, I guess how can you know? <laughs> it's actually much worse. <laughs> you right. Just, if you just would have written it If I it was just one shot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of how a lot of uh, books are. I mean, the more wisdom you have accumulated, sort of the deeper or more complex they become. So... I hope so. I hope it added some layers of perspective that I gained just well, through life experience. But it's also like an enforced patience in a way. Like I can find yeah. myself wanting to rush. Mm. And uh, it's bad for fiction. That's so true. I think yeah. it's bad for writing in, uh, in any <clears throat> form. Like if you want it to be really your best. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess there are people who can fire it out quickly. And if it comes out hot and fast, that's like the best they can do. But I don't know. I feel like you almost need layers of thought. Uh, I feel like really good. Yes. Really good writing, uh, like increasingly seems to me like the accumulated layers of thought. And when I read something that uh, really wows me, you can almost feel the the, the sweat. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you can feel how hard the the writer worked and like the the very patient, very focused attention that the writer placed on each and every line, mm, and how many yeah. times they went over it. You know, and like I don't know, I. I Maybe I'm projecting, but that's how it seems to me. Oh, absolutely. I mean, because there's so many. Gosh, it's so it's so hard um, to write a novel. There's just so many layers that you have to consider. I mean, not just the language, as you're mentioning, which is definitely a factor, but the story and how these characters fit together and their motivations. Wrapping and, it up at the end. Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that you have to consider. Emotional payoff. Yes. And then it's like dominoes. One thing affects the next. So each time you make a revision, you've got to go back and look at the whole thing again. It's like, yeah, you pull that thread or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. You knock that domino over (laughs) and it's like, oh God, you know, like now I've I've really got to go look at, you know, look at the whole thing again. Or I've got to to tear down this whole chapter that took me six weeks to write. Right. Which is very intimidating and it's painful. Yeah, painful too. You're like, yes, Fuck, you know, like yes, that's a lot of what it is. But it, and it's like this. It's like this sort of emotional discipline. Like you can't get too high. You can't get too low. Just keep, right. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. Just keep doing it. And then at some point, you know, it's going to be ready. And exactly. What, and you have to point. have faith in that process. Yeah. Did you ever uh, lose faith? I guess for, during the four or five yeah. years where you shelved it. But I mean, absolutely. once you dove back in, were there dark nights of the soul where you're like, what is this pile of shit? And yes, okay. a lot. Good. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I always like hearing that. Uh, <laughs> so how long did it, like once you went back in that summer, uh-huh. how long did it take? Probably like a year once I went back in, I would say. And you wrote while teaching? Or did you quit teaching? No, I wrote while teaching, but it was really challenging. And I mean, then um, 
once I found a a home for it, a publishing house and and an editor, then I obviously had more editing. And that was also while I was teaching. So, but at that point, my attention kind of was split. So it was difficult. You were like, I was neglecting my students. (laughs) I was trying not to neglect my students. Watch this movie, kids. Watch this movie. (laughs) Yeah. I was tempted to do that. (laughs) Um, So what did it, so schedule wise, what did it look like? When were you getting the writing done? Um, yeah, at that point I was using my, my night. Well, my nights were still grading, but weekends, weekends, mostly weekends yeah. blocking out Saturdays. Yes, exactly. I tended, I think that's the kind of writer I, I'm sort of, I know you're supposed to be very disciplined and write three hours a day consistently, but I've always kind of just been sort of in spurts more effective, I think. Caffeine? Caffeine helps, yes. Any other amphetamines? <laughs> That's it? Just caffeine? Uh, caffeine's the main one, yeah. The main one? Yeah. No, uh, well, I mean, chocolate sometimes oh, okay. helps, but I'm, I think... I'm fishing, I'm fishing <laughs> for a dark side. I'm fishing I know, for a dark I know. Side. The alcohol does not help writing in no. my in my no. <laughs> experience. Or pot. Pot doesn't... Well, yeah. Some, that's people, just, some, people yeah. Say, some people say, like, oh, pot is great. It really helps me. Uh, I'm mystified by that. I, right. I turn into such an idiot. I just become so tired i can't get anything that too, done that yeah too. but i just i'm just like you know nothing's happening for me uh intellectually right but yeah I absolutely no or, or it's like these really fleeting epiphanies you know these things that are very slippery and then they, they seem hilarious or you know super deep in the moment and then you look at them the next day and you're like this is a Right. This is not good, actually. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So you you uh, write this thing and then you get agented. Yes. Okay. So just the the normal track, like you finish the the normal track. How long did it take you to get an agent? Um, actually, I was lucky. I mean, I I didn't have any connections with agents, and I just kind of cold queried, and um, I got an agent within one or two months, I think. Okay, that's um, good. Yeah, it was good. I felt lucky. I know that it's not always did that Did you have easy. friends who helped you or put you in touch or anything like that? No. I mean, I did have um, friends who had been through the process, so they had good advice. Um, but no, I mean, I my agent... Who's your agent? Uh, Molly Friedrich, who's wonderful. Yeah. She, uh, I mean, I was in her, what is it called? The slush pile, basically. So I feel very lucky that she pulled me out. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Well, but you have, I think agents look at the, you went to Columbia. That's a good. Right. They, they say like that. that helps. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> every, every writer loves their agent. Is that right? Or they always say they Yeah. <laughs> Unless the agent is no longer their agent. I right. Think. Well, but, that's true. Then they wouldn't say that. But yeah. I think, I think, I do think writers have like an almost uh, like teenage, like amount of affection for their agents because their agents yeah. are supposedly their champions and like. As a right. writer, that's all you want is somebody who believes in you. And oh, like, exactly. So you really appreciate that. Oh, yeah. And especially because it's, you know, every day is filled with so much doubt. So, yeah, to yeah. have someone who chooses you in a way. Right. That's, <laughs> that's a very nice feeling. So how long did the, uh, the book take to sell? So I think it took a couple of months. Um, but... Yeah, it's a very sort of unique, I think, um, book. So it wasn't, um, it had to find the right person. And I feel like it did um, with Jill Bylosky at, at Norton. Um, Do you get a lot of rejections? 
I got some rejections. <laughs> yes. I mean, were there dark nights of the soul? Were there like, were dark nights. Yeah. Like near misses. Yeah. Yeah. I and I, and definitely days where, I mean, yeah, I definitely thought this isn't happening, yeah, and that was devastating. Exactly. I mean, yeah. you're writing this whole thing on spec after all those years, and. I couldn't quite fathom that. So luckily I never let my mind go there, even though actually my agent was saying, I don't think this, like, what else have you got? Basically. <laughs> oh, yeah, or like, I love the one where, the, where it's like, well, you might want to just go write another novel. Yeah. It's, it's like, like, really? See you in 10 years. <laughs> see you in a decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so yeah. when you get the call, when Norton comes through. Oh yeah. Jill, oh my gosh. Jill yeah. blesses you. Uh, <laughs> with her favor, like what happens? Like what? Like describe oh, that elation. Scene. I mean, that. Where, where were you? I was. I was in school. I was teaching, and I got the call. And um, yeah, I was. You took the call while teaching. <laughs> no, I. It was a two one two area code. I think it was actually like one of my uh, prep periods. Luckily, uh-huh. and I think I I was supposed to be at an assembly actually <laughs> that I may have gone late. You get to. the call and you just walked out. And <laughs> I was very tempted to do that. Just drop the just... chalk or whatever. It is. I guess it's a dry erase marker. Yeah, you dropped it and walked out. And never came back. <laughs> that would have been so cool if I did that. Like a mic drop. Yeah. Uh, but you did you what? You're in the. I'm mean, like I'm picturing you in a break room. There's yeah. lots of like rotten food in the refrigerator. <laughs> right. Is, is this where you found that's out? That's pretty. That's almost right. Was anybody else around? Nobody else was around. Um, Did you like run out into the hall and hug the janitor? I wanted to. <laughs> I was just, I, I was so excited. I think that was the high point of, because when I think back of, you know, receiving the book for the first time and that was really cool, but that. Just knowing it was going to be published it's was like the, the awesome. Sa- it's like Sally Field at the Oscars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They love me. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. That's it, what you wait for. It is. I mean, it, and it's a long <clears> road. <throat> it's a big achievement. And so um, has the process surprised you in any ways? Like, you know, because you have all these fantasies about it. You might even <clears throat> you might even know about it, um, you know, when you're... Uh, you know, reading about the lives of writers you admire, or hearing about friends who have gone through the publication process, but then it happens to you. Was there anything that didn't meet your expectations or that exceeded your expectations? Yeah. I mean, I think it's such a mystery how all of this stuff works. I mean, even though I had an MFA and I feel like I should have known more about what was going to happen. They rarely teach business stuff. They just don't. It's aesthetics and it's workshop yeah. and it's right. like read a book or whatever, but it's, exactly. not, it's not like, here's how you get an agent or this is what's going to happen. Exactly. None yeah. of that. So, um, no, I didn't know at all how the process worked, that it would take sort of, you know, months and months for each time, each time I would turn a new revision and I would just wait. And then I didn't realize that part of it. You're like, wait, I'm not the center of, the I'm universe. not the only <laughs> client you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was, that was a surprise. Um, and also I think you think you're done. You sold it to you're done. Like the book's done, but, um, it wasn't done. There were things that I still needed to fix, big which things. I mean, there were fa- fairly big things, like more development sort of. Um, it was shorter initially and, and just had to like round it out and uh-huh. in really good ways. I'm really grateful for the editing. But um, initially, I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't see it coming. Um, and then, too, you don't know. I mean, I didn't have illusions. I have uh, – I know a couple people who have truly, quote, unquote, made it with their you know books and gotten Ooh. these – a 
Karen Russell is oh, okay, uh, yeah. is Swamplandia. Exactly, his my best blurb. Um, and uh, like a, I'm one of my good friends is Helene Wecker, who wrote The Gollum and the Genie. Um, and they they were very successful with their first contracts. Um, and so it wasn't like I was expecting that because I knew the reality. But um, then it's this whole thing of market. I, I didn't know that I would have to try to market myself, uh-huh. which feels very awkward and strange. So, suddenly and, you're sitting here in a garage. <laughs> right. Well, this is fun. But yeah, I was told to like make a Twitter account oh, and, my God. you know, things that are not natural for me at all. So that part of it surprised me. I think there's also something just desperate and sad. I know when yeah. that's the advice. I mean, I get it. I understand why they give it, but it's like, really, <laughs> that's it. Just yeah. make a Twitter. What else can I do? Build yeah. a, you know, build a community. Like, right. Like, oh, geez. After spending a decade writing the book, like, yeah, I don't mean to be, uh, you know, spoiled or to bitch, but come on. Yeah, and shouldn't then, there be somebody who does that for you? <laughs> right. I mean, I wish. I mean, the the and the publicity team is awesome. They they try, but I think it's just such a mystery how you sell books these days. I uh, think that's the bottom line. It's one of the it's one of the fundamental questions that uh, at the heart of this show, like you know, yeah. what I'm saying? And, and I think at the heart of every writer's life is how does this how does this happen? Yeah. Uh, I don't think anybody knows. I think right. if, if somebody did, they'd be really rich. I think it's ultimately word of mouth. Yeah, I agree with you. But yeah. then again, I think there can be situations where a book. But then again, that's word of mouth too. I, I was going to say a book sells at auction, and there's a big fuss made about it in the publishing press. Uh huh. That gets out into maybe the mainstream media. the The advance is so big that, like you know, it goes viral and people find out. People are like, "Oh, I need to read this." It seems yeah. like maybe sometimes the machine can swing into action and really push a book, but. You know, I've seen that happen, and the book doesn't doesn't do well. You know, mm-hmm. like I'm thinking of uh, what's the guy's name who wrote um, Cold Mountain? Charles Fraser. Yeah. Cold Mountain obviously did great. The next book got like an eight million dollar advance. They obviously mm. they obviously spent a bunch of money to market it, but it didn't didn't it didn't meet expectations sales wise. Um, right. So, so who knows? You know, who pe- knows? people have to read it. They have to love it. They have to press it into their friends' hands and say, read this. That's right. Yeah. Something has to resonate enough. And and I think a book has to, and this is where it starts to get a little bit cosmic, but it has to arrive in the world and into the marketplace at a time when the world is just waiting for it somehow in some weird ephemeral way, you know? Yes. I totally agree with that. seems like there's something. And you you can't game that. You can't. It's like no. you either get that luck or you don't. That's the luck. and There is definitely that element. Yeah. So, okay. So when your book sells, like, is it more of a regular normal thing? Like you didn't have some giant auction. It was just like a preempt and a... No, it wasn't a giant auction, sadly. There, was, <laughs> there weren't 15 publishers fighting like tooth and nail. No. Um, but I know that's not the norm. So, yeah. No, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the dream. <laughs> that's the dream. The yeah, exactly. Um, and so you go through the editorial process, the, the book arrives, you get a copy sent to your door, and then it gets into the, the bookstores. 
Have you gone to the bookstores to visit it? Is it there yet? I've well, I've only seen it at the bookstores where I've done reading so far, but oh, that's right. that's pretty neat. I am I do have to do that thing of walking into just a random bookstore and seeing. I it. used to visit my book all the time. Like Did the, you? The first yeah. like six months that it was out, I'd be like, wherever we were, we'd be in some mall somewhere. I'd be like, right. I'm just gonna go check on it. See, see how it's doing. yeah, make like, sure they have it. I, and then I used to joke, yeah. it's like it's like visiting someone at the hospital. Like, <laughs> How's it going? Because they're just sitting there. No one's bought any. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like, how you doing? You, you okay? <laughs> Hanging in you there. Need a glass of water. <laughs> yeah. You need a nurse to change your uh, whatever you know, your ID. <laughs> right. Uh, so, do you have high expectations? Do you have um, modest expectations? Like, how are you handling the release emotionally? Are you somebody yeah. who gets like, are you are you hounding your your uh, editor and your publishing no. house for sales numbers or anything like that? Oh no, I'm kind of scared to to wonder about that. I mean, okay. I I am curious, but. Um, yeah, I mean, the whole time I've sort of been very, um, I guess you could say, like, I, I, it's kind of like the superstitious thing we were talking about earlier. Like, I say I don't believe in it, but then secretly I do. Like, I say I don't have high expectations, but then... Everybody does. Of course I have my dreams, oh, you no. know, that I can't squash, I mean, basically. I, I guess <laughs> I guess there are some people that I've spoken with that really just were like, no, I just did it for fun. I don't care. I think yeah. there's actually some people who might be like that. The overwhelming majority of people who write books during the writing of the book are thinking like, this is going to be huge. I that, mean, there's that little piece in yes. the back of your mind that dreams that, I think. Or you'll have like a good day at the keyboard and like, you'll be like, oh my God. Yeah. Like, I've got it. <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you got to have, how else are you going to maintain the stamina necessary to finish a book? You need a little bit of that. Right. The, it does. The dream keeps it alive, yeah, I think. You can't, like, yeah. you can't mope your way through a 10-year writing process. No, no. I mean, because there are too many dark days. There are. You some. need those those visions. How do, you, how do you handle dark days? Do you have a, do you believe in God? Do you pray? What do you do? Um... Gosh, um, it's kind of like the superstition thing. Um, I, How were you raised? I was raised Jewish. Okay. So, um, like, did you have a bat mitzvah and stuff? I did. Right. Yeah, did yeah. You speak Hebrew. I, a tiny bit. Okay. I went to a Jewish day school, so we did you um, go to a kibbutz in Israel or anything like that. I have been to visit. I mean, I haven't lived on one. Is it a kibbutz? A kibbutz, not a kibbutz. What's it called? <laughs> kibbutz, yeah. Kibbutz, yeah. yeah. A kibbutz is where you're just like kibbutz doing this. Kibbutz is like kibbutz, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, I know my... That's know good. My That's very good. <laughs> um, so you're Jewish. I mean, like, but you had like a cult. You're culturally and you did some going to synagogue and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a foundation. I can't... I mean, it's it's definitely rooted in who I am. Um, I don't know if that comes into play when I think about things like success, but I guess it does in the back of my mind. Yeah. Like I, I guess I do believe kind of if I'm a good person and I do, you know, I guess it's like the work ethic. Maybe that's all related in a way to religion that like things will work out in a, in a good way. That's not such a bad thing. Yeah. You have a lot of guilt. Uh, sometimes I have guilt more like worry. I think that's kind of a Jewish thing. Like I worry a lot. So that means you're, you're, <laughs> the guilt is, I think your head's in the past. Worry is your head's in the future. Yeah. I would say that's more me. You're more future worried. You're yeah. future concerned. Yeah. What are you worried about, about the future? Just how, are, am I going to make it? Or are you worried about yeah. like, like, are you worried, <laughs> or are you worried about like more planetary concerns? Like is the climate change? Oh, I, if I let myself worry about that, sure. I, I will worry about that, but I'm usually more, um, self-absorbed. 
right. Just like, well, how am I going to do? I don't give a shit about the planet. <laughs> How's my family going to do? How am I going to do? Yeah. Right. What's going to happen? I do care about the planet, but it doesn't keep me up at night in the same way. Yeah. It's too it's too depressing. It's like politics. I can't. I get too angry and upset. Think globally, act locally. Yeah, there you go. Power of one. Exactly. Yeah. Seems more manageable. Yeah. Um, but you don't practice religion. You don't go to synagogue or anything like that? Uh not very often. Um Holidays. I do maybe once a year. Yeah. You do like Passover or whatever it is? Yeah. I really like the holidays. Yeah, I fast on Yom Kippur and I do that's a good one for really reflection and that's when i feel the guilt and try to sort of think about my year and um but yeah the holidays passover that's a fun one i like those i don't know anything about anything that's <laughs> everyone has dinner and talks and there's a story yes okay yeah and that. it, that's fun because you get to like have dinner and drink wine and yeah i just stopped drinking wine you uh, did not like not, <laughs> not cold turkey completely oh but I've talked on this show before where I'm like, I'm very moderate, but I was having like two glasses of wine a day, every single day. Oh, yeah. And I've done that for years. Uh-huh. Just like, that's like my little like wind down or whatever. And I finally was like, what am I doing? Mm. I don't like the, the fact that like I need to like numb myself in any way. Right. No, that makes sense. And yeah. I'm like, is this a good example? Plus like all the money you're spending, I start adding it up. Mm. I'm like, I'm that's it. true. It's like $3,500 a year on wine. <laughs> yeah. My I husband it, and I did that. That's yeah. outrageous. Yeah. So it does I'm, add up. It's an experiment. I'm going to try. I'm so. Staying. How long have you been? Oh, like two days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, longer than that. <laughs> Forty-eight hours. I've got this. Are you off of it completely now, no, or no, you just cut weekends, it down? I think on the like, I'll, like one or two nights a week. If okay. I wanna, or if I go out, like my wife. Right. My that wife seems and I are like a go good. Out to dinner tomorrow night, and I'm going to have some wine with dinner. But like, just like every night, just as a ritual, you've yeah. That ritual's got to end. Okay. I think. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, and I've like, it's two glasses. It's never more. But then again, it's like, sometimes it's like, oh, maybe the, these are pretty big glasses. Is it really two glasses? Like, <laughs> two what, and a half. Yeah. What yeah. constitutes a glass of wine? Yeah. But I'm, I'm very self-conscious about that sort of stuff. And I don't like the idea of needing any sort of intermediary between me and my experience as difficult or as annoying as, or painful as it might be. No, that makes sense. I, I get wanna, that. I want to feel shit. <laughs> right. And other people are like, I don't want to feel anything. Yeah. <laughs> It's a fine balance, it's a I fine guess. Balance. But you seem like you're pretty in control. Um, <clears throat> I I like to think so. I it's hope all, so. It's all a facade. I <laughs> no, I I think I'm pretty in control most of the time. I do like wine, although I haven't had any in, in a while. Well, that's obviously, right. that's right. When's your baby due? <laughs> um, July. July. So that's been that's been an interesting experience, actually, to give that up. Because yes. we, we also had it as a rich, kind of a ritual each night. Your husband's just drinking in front of you. Yeah. He's, he's sad driver. actually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, I, uh, I congratulate you. Thank you book. so it's, much. It's such a pleasure to meet you. And, you too. Uh, hopefully you'll find some time. I mean, you know, now you're going to be a mom. It's going to be a little bit of a, a game to try to figure out time to write, but yes, kids nap there. You can figure it out. All right, good. I, I yeah, think. I hope so. I'm hopeful. Um, you, were you going on tour or anything? Like, are you running around the country right now? Um, I am going to the East Coast next week. So okay. D.C. and um, in Philly. Capacity and- crowds. <laughs> you, one can hope, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I wish you well, and thanks for thank coming you. over. Thank you. And thank you so much. 
Okay, guys, there you go. Michelle Adelman, her novel is called Peace of Mind, P-I-E-C-E, Peace of Mind, available now from W.W. Norton and Company. You can find her over on the Twitter. Her handle is at Mish Adelman, M-I-C-H Adelman. Right? You got that. At Mish Adelman. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for the music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget... This podcast has its own app. Go get the app, the official Other People with Brad Listy podcast app. It's available for free wherever you uh, get your apps. Get the uh, Other People app on your device. The most recent 50 episodes will be there waiting for you free. You get the most recent 50 for free. That's the way that it works. Uh, You can download episodes to listen to offline. The most recent episode will automatically upload. So new episodes just automatically upload to the app. You don't have to do anything. It's very convenient. It's very user-friendly. It happens as if by magic. And then if you want to get at the deep archives, if you want to get at everything, just sign up for a premium subscription right there within the app. You sign up right there in the app. It's 75 cents a month. It's almost nothing. 75 cents a month gets you access to every single episode uh, anywhere you go at your fingertips right there. Boom. Do it. Support the show. That would be great. If you want to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. Pontificate. Rant. I don't know if you can hear it, but there's two things that kind of characterize uh, today's show. My performance in the uh, monologue, post and uh, pre, of uh, today's episode is that I'm very tired. I have not slept a lot recently, and I'm also in a hurry. And I also drank some espresso late in the day. I'm a little jacked up. I'm a little tired. I'm a little foggy. I'm a little soft in the head. I'm a little bit in a hurry. I'm looking at the clock. Got shit to do. I'm going to Melissa Broder's book launch party tonight. Downtown Los Angeles. Got to fight traffic. I got to go uh, get dressed. I got to deal socially tonight. Support my friend and uh, writing partner as her book rolls out into the universe. Why am I always saying that? Books rolling out. I'm going to roll a book out the fuck is that all about? Please remember that Sarah Orne Jewett died of a cerebral hemorrhage and that Gertrude Stein died of cancer of the uterus. That's all for now. Thanks again to Michelle Edelman. Uh, Adelman? I'm going to fu- I fucked this up. Is it Adelman or Edelman? Maybe it's Edelman. Maybe I was supposed to say Adelman. I live in fear of doing this and maybe I've done it. Today would be the day considering how tired I am. Michelle, if I have mispronounced your name consistently a majority of the time in this episode, I want you to know that I'm sorry. I should have clarified. I usually do. It's Adelman. Edelman. Fuck. Thanks, you guys, for listening. Thanks to Michelle. Thanks to W.W. Norton and Company. And, uh... What do I say? I'll be back again soon. I'm gonna go get dressed, go to this, uh, book reading. It's gonna be like a very hip literary party at the Ace Hotel downtown in Los Angeles. The Ace Hotel is very hip. I feel very uncool there. I had a meeting there once with uh, the culture director or whatever. It's just like kind of like a feeling. Uh, what, what do you call it? When you're putting out feelers. We were kind of feeling each other out. Is there some way we could uh, unify? I could do the podcast from the Ace Hotel or something. But like I, I went there and I met with this woman who's uh, probably in her late 20s. Gorgeous girl. Incredibly hip Israeli girl. Or at least she felt incredibly hip to me. And I just felt like I was like somebody's dad. I was just, she was just like, what are you doing here? The Ace Hotel. Who brought the Normcore guy? <laughs> Who brought the Normcore podcaster to the Ace Hotel? I don't know, it's just too cool. 
I can't fit in. Maybe I can. Maybe it's all in my head. I'm going to be at the Ace Hotel. Uh, speaking of which, the Ace Hotel Theater on April Fool's Day for a literary deathmatch during AWP. If you want to go there, I'm going to be interviewing Melissa Broder, author of So Sad Today, on stage for approximately seven minutes at Literary Deathmatch. You should go to that. You should watch me do that. That'll be good, right? <laughs>